Hi, I'm Gabby Herculano. And I'm Shella Lika, and you're listening to Climate Solutions with Gabby and Shella. A weekly podcast where we bring to you evidence of acceleration of the massive shift towards a green, sustainable, and balanced economy. We have a laser focus on the 2030 milestone of cutting emissions in half. Our children deserve better, and we have no time to waste. Join us and our guests as we discuss the innovative and impactful solutions shaping our world. Debbie, we're so happy to have you um, with us today. You are a legend in the ETF space. We want to talk about all of that. Um, but I think that the, the very first question, no doubt, is um, you're, you're a veteran in the space. You were at NASDAQ, BlackRock, Morgan Stanley for many years. Did you see ETF becoming so big and such a democratic product? Was, was it something that you expected to, to develop the way that it has? So, you know, maybe just to give a little background, when I started working on ETFs at Morgan Stanley in London back in 97, there were 21 ETFs and $8 billion. So there was definitely a lot of pushback where many people would say, I'm an active manager, I'll never use these products. Others would say, are you gonna pay me retrocessions or commissions to use the products? And ETFs don't do that in general. There's been a few attempts to try that, but it never has worked out. Um, so it wasn't easy, but I would say I believe that the products had a lot of benefits, partially because my job before uh, Morgan Stanley was working at Greenwich Associates. So Charlie Ellis, the founder of Greenwich Associates, wrote the paper, the, the book, The Loser's Game, and also did the first study of how many active funds do not in the U.S. beat the S&P 500. And so it was very clear that it's hard to find active managers that consistently deliver alpha. Not that some don't and not that some hedge funds don't, but it's really hard. And so you find that getting alpha through asset allocation made a lot of sense. And ETFs also, the early products were 17 products on MSCI benchmarks. And so for many, when you think about investing in Korea and Taiwan back then, you need to have foreign investor status. You need to be able to have certain custodial setups. So ETFs just made it really easy to invest in markets and small size. And they were the only democratic product out there where you saw hedge funds, pension funds, financial advisors, and and retail having access to the same toolbox at the same annual cost with a very small minimum investment size. So that I think was a real game changer. So I believed in the products but it was not easy going in the beginning. I have to uh, share that, but I did believe in it and I saw the potential. And it's really listening to those questions that will cause people to try them. Because once investors try using ETFs, you find they use them more, they use them in larger sizes, and they look at using them in different ways. And so it's really that getting that hook. And so for some investors, it was they wanted to invest in Japan using ETFs if they ever felt it was the right time. So you had to make good notes as to what were the hot buttons or areas where ETFs could be a solution and remember to follow up with those people. 
and it certainly has grown, as you said, and as you've witnessed, um, uh, when we started our company just a couple of years ago, a little over two years ago, I remember the whole industry was about $7 trillion of AUM globally. And um, I believe most recently, the numbers are more like 10 trillion. So it's phenomenal growth. And so can you talk a little bit, you've witnessed a number of, of um, you know, changes within the industry, phenomenal growth, perhaps going back most recently to the past year, what would you say are some of the key kind of highlights of what you've witnessed as the key trends within the ETF space? Yeah, so I would say the key trends are, so we just finished our uh, global report. So the assets are basically $10.3 trillion. So we're at record level of assets almost everywhere in the world. We also saw $1.3 trillion going into ETF. So the net inflows are significantly higher than any time in the past. And so what we have seen is more and more investors are adopting the use of ETFs in different ways, and that's all over the world. So today we have ETFs listed in over 60 countries around the world on 79 exchanges. Um, there's over 600 providers of products. So we do a study where we look at how many institutions use ETFs, and we've seen over the past year more than 1,000 new institutions are using ETFs. Um, the assets held by institutions are over half of all ETF assets are held by institutions. And that definition of institution is any entity that manages over $100 million in U.S. securities is counted by the SEC as an institution. So many RIAs fall into that bucket. But for me, it makes sense that they would, because when you're at that level of assets, you tend to have an institutional approach to deciding what products you will buy. Um, so I think that's important. We're seeing increasing use of ETFs by mutual funds. And so I think that's also an important trend. But we also saw that if you go back one prior year, in 2020, we saw 15% increase in investors in the stock market who were new. Um, so this is based on a Charles Schwab study. So I think in the US, one of the big drivers of more use of ETFs has partially been due to COVID where a lot of men who mostly have hobbies outside of the home were sitting at home and you watch CNBC and you can see everything they talk about is this sector's doing X, this country's doing Y, and here's ETFs and the tickers. Um, so many people decided to take more interest in finance. And that was combined with in the US, you can trade ETFs and all shares without paying commission. So I think this really has accelerated the growth by retail investors. I think the other would be investing in themes was something that for many investors, you know, you talk to your friends, you'd want to say, hey, I just found this interesting company. Hard to do that, but I think being able to invest in themes is exciting for many people. They see it as disruptive technology or gaming or something else, and they could talk to their friends about it. It's a little bit hard to get excited about buying the S&P 500 um, ETF, right? not something you wanna call up your friends and say, hey, I just bought you know, an ETF on the S&P 500. But I think talking about themes, talking about countries, you know, ETFs that were investing in travel, you know, going back to work or not working, um, all of these things gave people an opportunity to talk to their friends about something um, that wasn't just COVID. But I do think COVID over the past two years also had a big impact on people. So. The reason I say that is, you know, you look at pictures of the skylines in India, Mexico, even London, and without as many planes, trains, automobiles going around, the skies were definitely a lot bluer. 
you know, less air pollution. And so people saw that ESG, the E component, especially initially, but I think they also saw through Black Lives Matter, um, discussions around diversity, you know, NASDAQ requiring uh, diversity on boards, others requiring this, more transparency on gender pay discrepancies um, has really caused people to become aware of the benefit of diversity, but also supporting it. And then I think governance is another one where um, people are concerned about how are things being governed. So I think ESG has been a topic that has become more aware to more investors. Clearly in Europe, we've been a leader with the EU taxonomy and with SFDR classifying all ETFs and funds as being either Article 6, 8, or 9. Um, so many investors globally are embracing usage ETFs to get exposure to Article 8 or 9 funds that are really focused on some level of ESG. Um, so I think that's been important. I mentioned thematics. I mentioned more new investors. Um, I also think that ETFs are just a very good, useful tool. They're a better way of investing. And so what we've seen is in the US, um, the first conversion of a mutual fund into ETF happened with Guinness Atkinson. Then we saw Dimensional, we've seen Motley Fool, we've seen others being um, open to converting mutual funds into ETFs because in the US, ETFs are more tax efficient than mutual funds, which means in the end, the investor's getting better returns. And so we see that that trend is going to continue, I believe, but the US was not first. We had the first conversion of a mutual fund into an ETF, um, I believe was Credit Suisse doing it when they first entered the ETF industry many years ago with their brand XMATCH ETFs, they converted an SMI index fund into an ETF. And when they came back into the ETF industry, they um, converted index funds into ETFs again. So the US is not leading this charge, um, but clearly we're seeing the demand and interest of ETFs by active asset managers growing. And they haven't all gone non-transparent. So, you know, everyone thought that the ability to do non-transparent, uh, meaning you don't provide daily transparency as you do with normal ETFs, would encourage um, more firms to enter. What we have seen is many firms are embracing transparency and the conversion. So, you know, I think that's important. And then going back to 2020, I think the Fed using ETFs as investment tools for high yield and investment grade fixed income was also a testament to the fact that ETFs work, trading works, creation redemption works. So I think in 2020, during that volatile period, ETFs busted a lot of myths and were able to demonstrate that there is support. We actually saw more trading firms, authorized participants come in and do creations and redemptions. And we saw that that process actually did work. So I think there's a number of drivers that started over the past two years. It's hard to believe that COVID kind of continues to uh, influence us in many ways. But I do think there's been some benefits of uh, that period um, on the ETF industry. ETFs keep innovating, and here you you know we've looked back and and and, and touch about upon what is what is ahead. That innovation. Uh, it seems to be a, a common denominator. Um, the, the overtaking the assets in the in the hedge fund, providing that alpha, that is all extremely exciting, and, and we share that excitement. But there are threats ahead, right? Um, do you see, for example, direct indexing as as one of those? So 
I honestly don't, and I'll explain why. Earlier, I mentioned how over half of the assets in the ETF industry are held by institutions. So institutions have had a form of direct indexing. And actually, I would say for most, direct indexing is a little bit of a misnomer because they're tweaking what they hold. So it's more kind of custom indexing. But institutions have been using segregated accounts as a way to invest where they're the beneficial owner. So they can decide what's in the basket. Do they want to do securities lending? How do they want to vote if they're going to vote? So segregated accounts have been there for institutions and they've used them. But what you've seen is many pension funds, hedge funds, asset managers turn to ETFs because they like the fact that you can buy them, sell them anytime during the trading day. You can invest in any size where doing a segregated account requires typically you're going to be allocating over $100 million for over a year because there's a lot of setup work. If you then say, okay, for the retail investor, the concept of direct indexing or custom baskets or custom indexing really only works for US equities. And today really works for people who have large pools of assets that they want to invest. So I think that we will find some people using that, but you have to remember that you can do tax loss harvesting with ETFs. So that's one of the benefits put forward with direct indexing. Um, you know, most people are using some ETFs and using some mutual funds and using some individual security investing. So I believe that we'll continue to see people using ETFs and they will continue to be used around the world because direct indexing actually isn't working all over the world. So it's limited in terms of who today can use it, how it can be used. And I fear that for many, they're gonna want to ask someone to help them do this custom indexing and exclude things, really looking through an ESG lens and sometimes being upset that, hey, I was invested in this company and now it's in the press for doing something bad. I don't think anyone has a crystal ball to be able to cover off all of the E issues, the S issues and the G issues to make all investors happy all the time. Debbie, when um, looking your name up, the number of awards and accolades that come up is far too much to mention here and list. And clearly you're um, a leader in the ETF space, but also uh, a leader in the space of women in finance. And that is one of the awards, 100 Most Influential Women in Finance. Can I ask, uh, can I ask you now, turning the topic a little bit to your role with the um, group, the nonprofit that you founded, Women in ETFs, of which Gabby and I are very much members. Um, great organization. Can you talk us a little bit through your idea there? What kind of prompted you to start that? How that's grown and sort of how important that is to you, um, you know, your participation in that and seeing more women in this industry. Yeah, so I should actually say also, though, to start that, uh, you know, winning an award is you're representing a lot of people behind you have helped you to make that possible. And, you know, I've worked with some amazing teams, mentors, sponsors, etc. So uh, the accolades actually deserve to go to a lot larger number of people than just myself, but um, clearly honored to have won those. Women in ETFs came about back in 2013. So I was at an ETF event in Boston and Joanne Hill came up to me and said, you know, I think we should develop a women's group to help some of the new entrants coming into the ETF industry that have a lot of experience in managing money or other things, but don't really understand ETFs. It's new to them. It'd be good to help them. 
Um, Linda Zhang was the person she was referring to. Um, Linda came and met her briefly. Sue Thompson, who was at uh, BlackRock at the time, uh, and Michelle Mikos, who was at Invesco. So, you know, we played around with this idea. I remember sitting at uh, the airport on my way back and kind of starting to formulate things and getting it set up. So by January of 2014, we officially launched Women ETF. So there's five founders. And the idea was to connect, support, inspire women and diversity in the ETF industry, to get people to come into the industry, to have a good career, um, to really feel successful and supported. And I definitely wanted men to be part of this solution. I think it's very important that the community helps support everyone. And so today we have over 7,200 members, 17% um, are men. There are affiliated organizations in Europe, which I'm also one of the founders and board members of Women ETFs EMEA. There's uh, an association out in Asia Pacific and then in Canada. So we have um, chapters right now in about 26 different countries. We have members in even more countries. Um, and I think we try to do these tasks by doing mentorship programs, which are official. So a mentor and a mentee are teamed up for 10 months. Um, I've been involved in that a number of times. And I have to say, I've learned as much from my mentee as she said she learned from me. So it's great, you know, in both directions. We do university outreach. We do professional development. We do um, educational events. We also do networking events. Um, we've done Ring the Bell for International Women's Day, partnering with UN Women, UN Global Compact, Sustainable Stock Exchange, the IFC and World Federation of Exchanges, um, and just trying to do things that are gonna help the ETF ecosystem grow and help people in it understand all of the innovation that is happening because to be successful in ETFs, you need to understand, you know, benchmarks, regulations, tax, new asset classes, um, the investor preferences, all of the changes that are going on. So it's very dynamic. And, um, you know, there's a huge army of people who have dedicated time over the past, um, you know, over seven years to the organization, help it grow. So clearly happy and proud to be one of the founders and board members. Um, and also the co-president here in EMEA, but it is an army of people that have made Women ETFs what it is today, and also the corporate sponsors who have donated money to help us hold events and do other things that we've done over the years. And I hope that 2022 represents a year where we can go back to in-person, but I do believe networking, education, professional development is really key to uh, helping all of us grow our careers. So let's talk about what is ahead. And I shared with you in the past, Debbie, this, um, this, this book by a Wharton professor of ours. And he talks about how by 2030, women will own half of the wealth on the planet. And, and here you're talking about women in ETF. We're not going anywhere. We're here to stay. Um, what is ahead for you? How do you see the world evolving by 2030? Um, are we going to see ESG become universal? It is not yet. What are some of your you know, best kind of hopes and, 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 and vision for, for what is ahead? Yeah, so I think finance needs to change. If you look at the way um, financial advisors have tended to deal with their clients, it's tended to be that 
the advisor is most typically a male dealing with the uh, male partner in a relationship um, often doesn't know the female and so you or the children. And so I think there's also that large transfer of wealth that's happening um, as people retire and unfortunately pass on. But what you find is the, with the number of divorces that happen and the fact that women live longer than men, the advisors really need to be having relationships with both partners um, and they need to have relationships with the children if they want to be able to continue to be helpful to all parties in that family um, structure, whatever that family looks like. So I would hope that education for younger people starts much earlier. So children need to understand the basics of finance. It should be something that's taught to young people, you know, how to save, how to invest, what is a stock, what is a bond. So I think we have a lot to do around education and engagement around financial literacy. And I think that's a big challenge. I do think ETFs are a very good tool for that because they allow you in very small sizes to get instant diversification to various exposures, asset classes, countries, sectors, et cetera. The topic of ESG, I believe that in the next five years, we won't have discussions around ESG because it will be included in all benchmarks and it will be included in the way people think about investing. But your view of ESG might be slightly different than my view, might be slightly different than someone else's. But I do think people see this now as a financial risk and not just giving up returns because the reality is a lot of ESG products perform better than market cap. So it's not about giving up returns for uh, doing better. Also, I think what ESG is has changed a lot from the early days when it was just excluding the sin stock. So excluding tobacco, firearms, pornography. I mean, there's much more to it. And in many cases, um, many of the ESG products are trying to engage with companies to get them to do better. Um, so I think really that ESG trajectory is significant and large. And we see governments and regulators helping to support this around the world. So I think this is going to be a very important topic going forward. And again, I think the indices will just be including ESG going forward. Um, so that will be a big change. Um, so yeah, I think that, as you said earlier, ETFs have benefited because a lot of people from the investment banking industry have come into ETFs where they're often looking for solutions to help people um, be able to invest in places that might have been difficult to gain access to new types of exposures, you know, think about carbon credits. Um, so I think we have a lot of very innovative, thoughtful, interesting people in the ETF industry, which is why I'm still excited to be part of it. And I see it as an interesting place to be. So I think it will continue to evolve. And I think people have realized that ETFs are really just a wrapper. So it's a mutual fund regulated as USITS or 40 Act with the added benefits of being listed and traded on an exchange, having this unique creation redemption process, and in the US being more tax efficient than mutual funds. So I think we need to sell the benefits of ETFs and help people to think about how to do good asset allocation and how to think about their needs for saving pools over time. So you might have a short-term need of saving to go on holiday. You might be saving to put your child through university, buying a house, 
for you know healthcare going forward, um, retirement, whatever. Um, so I think thinking about financial education is probably one of the biggest challenges for all of us. Well, thank you very much, Debbie. That was absolutely great. Wonderful to have you on. We're so grateful for your time. Always such a pleasure. Um, thank you again for making time for us today. Uh, thank you for having me. It was great. Thank you so much, Debbie. Thanks for listening. You can listen to Climate Solutions on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, YouTube, and wherever you get your shows. You can also leave us a rating on Apple Podcasts or like and subscribe on YouTube. To find out more about us, visit us at iClimate.Earth or at Climate Solutions with Gabi and Shala on YouTube or on Instagram. Click the links in the video to know more about us or our guests. See you next time.